Thanks for tuning in to the Banner Church Podcast, recorded live in sunny Scottsdale, Arizona. For more information, visit banner.church today. Enjoy the message. I'm remembering all those things. <laughs> That's a million things. Awesome. The best. Uh, excited to be here this morning and share with you guys. I think it's it's going to be a great day, man. When the worship band is bumping like that, you know it's going to be a good day. And I love our worship team, too, because I, 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 you, you, know, you won't necessarily always know this, but like half this worship team is just like going through it today and chose to come up on stage and worship through it. And I love that. Like my brother, my brother Matthew was playing guitar, was in a car accident like the other day, totaled his car. And he's just up here like worshiping through it, believing God. Isn't that what worship is for? Amen. Amen. I love that. Absolutely incredible. Um, that heart to just praise through the junk, right? <laughs> right. You got to joy through the junk sometimes. Uh, but excited for what the Lord is doing. And especially as we approach Christmas, uh, we are literally three days away from a, a little challenge I want to encourage you with called the four for 40, which is the 40 days leading up to Christmas which is an incredible opportunity this year. Christmas is on a Sunday, but really the season is an incredible opportunity to share the hope of Jesus Christ with someone. And I know that our, our culture is going to make us think about how busy, how chaotic, how uh, kind of gathering of stuff we can be. But what I love about Jesus Christ is he goes, hey, remember that this is my day. Remember why we even have this day, the day off from work? It was because people celebrated that I came to be near you and to bring hope and life. And you never really know what a simple invitation can do to someone's life, how it can impact them, how it can encourage them. And we have some really great testimonies of that. And we were talking the other week, we're like, man, we need to share what God is doing in his church. And, and even by the most simple invite to encourage everybody that this is not a, a super complex thing, but the, the hope of Jesus is good and the community of the church is good. Amen. Amen. So this morning, I want to invite up an amazing couple, Mike and Heather Myers, if they would come up and share this morning. Awesome. Looking sharp. Looking sharp. And I, I just wanted to invite them. Go ahead and, and introduce yourself and just share a little bit. Like, how did you find Banner Church? People have probably seen you guys, seen you running around or the cafe or cameras looking really fly with this pink cape blazer, which is amazing. Uh, share a little bit, like, who you guys are, how, how you guys found Banner Church. Yeah, so I'm Heather, and this is Mike, and we came to Banner about a year and a half ago, and we were at a moment where we were really searching for a new church at our time um, in that 18 months ago, and I was teaching at a gym where I met Katie, and I was like, this girl's really cool. She has cool hair and tattoos, and we just got <laughs> chatting one time, and she's like, I saw your Spotify, and you had a Hillsong playlist on there, and she's like, are you a Christian? I was like, yes, and she's like, what church do you go to? And I was like, well, that's actually kind of a funny question, because we're looking for a new church right now, and she it was right around Easter time, and she's like, you should come to our church on Easter, and it was just such a cool, like, God thing. Like, we've been searching for a community and just a really good culture, and it was just such a blessing, and we have been coming ever since. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so as you guys have been here, kind of what what has your experience been like? And I know God's done things in your life, but what has God done in your life in this in this past season as a way, I think, to even encourage people to, to step out as well? I think the biggest experience for us um, 
that's been such a blessing is just the community that we've had. I think we were striving so much and really yearning for a community of like true authentic relationships has been really huge and it was just so amazing being able to get connected in small groups and then Gil hears you play piano and it's been 10 years and now here on worship yeah. again. Um, so it's just really cool to have those moments where your friends are here to challenge you but also support you through the bad times um, and God has just done so many good things through that. Yeah, I, I would second that. The community here is amazing. We love it. We love you guys. Um, and in our life, it's just been something where we were kind of in a place where we were looking to grow, but we were having a really hard time doing that in the communities that we were in. Um, getting involved in the small groups here challenged us so much. Our prayer life, our life in reading the Bible and stuff like that went from almost non-existent, like, hey, we should have read our Bible this week, to something where... You know, instead of waking up and just thinking about work, the first hour of our day is dedicated to prayer and to being in the Word. And so it's something where God can do so much in your life, and He's looking to do so much in your life, but you need to give the accountability and the people around you care to press into you and to keep you accountable. Um, and that's what we found in this community. And it's been something that is just amazing because we've seen healing in our lives. We've seen even just little things of God healing anxiety, God healing us that's from... That's a big one, yeah. <laughs> um, but there's just so much that God has to offer, but until you truly press into him and until you have the people around you that will keep you accountable to continue to press into him and make it a lifestyle and not just something that hopefully you do once a week, um, that's where you see a lot of growth. And so for us, it's been an amazing experience to be a part of this community, and we love you guys. This wasn't on the list of questions Katie gave. But as somebody who was invited to church and, uh, and someone stepped out and invited you guys and as people who have stepped out and invited others you know, into, that, into that relationship first with Christ, obviously, um, well, how would you encourage someone who's maybe nervous about that, about if that matters or maybe doesn't feel like you know, that might be important? Yeah, I think it's really important. And for me, the biggest thing is you don't know where that person's at in their life. So you may feel like you're asking this groundbreaking question of like, hey, I know you don't go to church right now, but do you want to change your entire lifestyle to start coming to church? But that's how you may be thinking it is. But for us, it was more like we're looking for a church. We're looking for a community, but we're just having a hard time finding one, which is where a lot of people are at. And as soon as, you know, Katie prompted Heather with, you should come to church. We we're like, let's try it out. And the first time we came, we looked at each other. We're like, yeah, this is the church for us. And so... Just to keep in mind the people that you're reaching out to most likely are looking for a community because this world is broken. This world needs Jesus and it needs good communities. Awesome. Give it up, Mike and Heather. Thank you, guys. Really want to encourage you guys. I have 40 days till Christmas. I want to invite you be praying. God, who are four people, four and 40, four people in 40 days that maybe, maybe it's an invite to church. Maybe it's just sitting down and praying with them. Right? Maybe they never walk through the doors, right? The big thing is we grow the kingdom. Um, and one of the ways we do that is here. But I just want to encourage you, man, over the next 40 days, just invite the Lord. God, open my eyes for people that I could really share that hope of Jesus with. And maybe that hope is just a simple invitation. Maybe that's engaging with someone who I believe is unseen or, or unloved. I can connect with them. So I want to encourage you to be a part of that because it's going to be a really fun Christmas season. We made all those calendars. They're somewhere. They're on the chairs? Okay, sorry. The front row is a mess by the time y'all get here by the staff. Like, we tear this front row apart with all of our stuff. It's like a, 
looks like we're climbing Mount Everest by the time everyone else gets here with like 18 coffee cups. So I never know what you have, but our team did a good job. Well, this morning we're going to continue our series uh, called Confronting Christianity. How many of you have enjoyed the series so far? Enjoyed it? Awesome. Chandler and Jamin uh, did, a, did a fantastic job, and I was very thankful for both of their sermons because it gave me time to prep for the next three sermons, which is, does Christianity denigrate women, speaking on women and women's rights? Uh, is Christianity homophobic? And what does Christianity have to say about suffering? And so I was like, thank you, Chandler and Jamin, for giving me some more time. Ironically, these messages, because culture shifts so fast, when we initially planned this series a year ago, we've had to actually rewrite content because in a year, language has changed. Isn't that crazy? Like, things shift so fast. The things that are being touted as such secure foundational ideas of humanity that laws are being based off weren't things when we started prepping this series. So even this, ser this uh, sermon on uh, women and what God says about women and women's rights has been a unique uh, transformation even over the past six months. And these sermons, especially the next two, I would say, have the greatest expectations. They demand the most as far as context, and they receive the least amount of grace when you are sharing them. So and that's why I go to, that's why I ask for prayer <laughs> before, like, just pray that God moves, right? Because the past year, even the past month, even the past week, something that is a, a really consistent narrative we've been hearing about is women's rights. And there's a sub-narrative within that, within the Christian community, which is uh, a pro-life community, meaning we believe in the life of, of infants. We, we uh, are, are pro that child as well as the mother. There's a whole thing and narrative that has continued, which is that Christians are anti-women or anti-women's rights, that Christianity collectively as a, as a religious entity is a fundamentalist position that lowers the opportunity, the options, the choices, the possibility for women. And so it's been unique even in preparing this message because fundamentally I believe the complete opposite. And I believe that Christianity says the complete opposite, that since the beginning of time, Christianity does not oppress women. In fact, it elevates women. And I want to share that with you today. I want to I lay a foundation, if we can, um, and begin to talk about how this applies in our modern context. And the goal of this message today is not to cover every possible scenario as it comes to the debate but to give a strong context of what God has created, why he has created it, and why it is important that it is preserved and cared for and nurtured. And then importantly, what does that mean for us as individuals? What do we do with that information on a daily basis? And, I, and from there, you can be informed in the things you do, how you live, how you vote, how you act, all those kind of things. But I want to give you a foundation. Are you with me this morning? Yeah. Yeah. 
And so to give a foundation, we have to go really back to the beginning. And Chandler did an excellent job as he spoke the other week about being made in the image of God. And so some of this is going to piggyback off of that. So if you haven't listened to that fantastic message, I really, really encourage you to go listen to it. It was absolutely incredible. But the, I want to start from the beginning with this very simple statement. And I'm going to give some simple statements, but I want to, I just want to, I want to have them there uh, so we know. The very first is this, is that God created women. And all the men said amen. <laughs> Thank you. God created women. Genesis 1, 27, right? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then in Genesis 2.18, it says, The Lord said again, It's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. So at the beginning of creation, God makes man and woman. He says he needs a helper. He needs a helper fit for him. And that word helper is a great term because he's not saying, I'll make a subordinate. He, the word that he's using, helper, ezer, is used 20 times in, in this portion of Scripture. 17 of them are to describe God. So it can't mean inherently subordinate because God is not subordinate, yeah. right? He says, I'm going to make a helper. I'm going to make a united companion. This is not an egalitarian message. So don't stress out. It's not going that direction. Just trust me. Is that he says, I'm going to make a helper. I'm going to make someone who is in assistance, companionship. I'm going to give him unity. God is about unity and relationship. And so here's what he says. In Genesis 2, 21, he says, So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, right? The man was the source here of the woman. He made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall... She shall be called... She shall sell seashells. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. Therefore, look at 24. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Verse 24. Sometimes people read that at weddings, depending on the kind of wedding. But we talk about that as it comes to pretty much any marriage series. You've been in a marriage series, they talk about that. And we get the context, two will become one flesh, right? There's a unity of flesh, sex, right? We get that. There, there's a connection that's happening there. Married people said, amen. <laughs> that unity is a great metaphor. But here's something important, is that humanity is full of metaphors which God uses to explain supernatural relationships. How do we define and understand something that is beyond human comprehension? Well, God uses earthly metaphors that we can understand. He builds into creation metaphors we can understand as we are image bearers of God. God creates man. He creates woman as the helper, the companion to man. Man and women are both equal in human value but different in personhood. They're different in how they were created. They're different in how they are designated. They have... Uh, complementary distinctives, as you might say, in the sense that they are equal in value, but not the same. Men and women are different. And men and women, I know this is going to be confusing in, in, in a cultural concept, but God made man to be man, and God made women to be women. And within man being man, 
There are different personality traits of men, but you're still a man. You can be a man who likes chopping wood, a man who likes anime, a man who likes musical theater, a man with a low voice or a high voice, right? A man who likes to wear pink or a man who would never wear pink, but you're still a man. You can be a woman who likes to dress in sequins and flashy clothes and at the same time underneath are muddy cowboy boots. You can be a tomboy. You can be all kinds of things. Those are personality traits. I went irate this past week about a clip from Jon Stewart who was quoting all these kind of personality traits as if it defined that there were different genders. I'm like, those are personality traits. But God created man to be man and woman to be woman. That's what he created. And so he said, then man and woman, they're two fleshes. They're going to be joined in sexual union. They're going to become one flesh. There's going to be a unity. And that's why God creates the marriage covenant. Because in order for there to be unity, there has to be commitment. God is a God of intimate relationships. And man and woman are image bearers of that character. That's what he's creating. So they can bear his image even greater of the union that he wants to have with mankind. So marriage becomes an image, this unity becomes an image-bearing reality projecting the truth of God's own character and pointing us back to God. But the problem of sin, if you've ever read Genesis 3, is that it breaks that unity, that love, and importantly, commitment. Somebody say commitment. And so it injects conflict not only between man and God, but between men and women. Eve is deceived by Satan in Genesis 3 and sins. Adam follows that deception and sins as well. And in Genesis 4, God tells Cain, listen, sin is going to lead you to do what is contrary to you. You were created for unity. Sin is going to lead you to what is contrary. It says, if you do well, Genesis 4, 7, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So sin comes in and creates conflict. Just putting a foundation here. And where there was once unity, there's division, there's pain, and there's suffering. And we can see that all throughout the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament has an appalling account of the treatment of women. I mean, men as well, but for the sake of this sermon, women, right? It has an appalling account. And people bring up all kinds of things in the Old Testament, but I, wanna, I just want to say something. Not everything that Scripture reports, it endorses. Well, Scripture says this. Yeah, it's saying it's bad. Yeah. Right? That's not good. <laughs> you know? or, right? or God is not prescribing that to you. That's not, right? But what the Old Testament also shows is that God has a longing to restore, stay with me, this loving relationship. And the example, that unity of this loving relationship, but importantly, this loving relationship vertically. And so God makes a covenant with his people. They are now his bride. And Isaiah 54 says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he's called. For the Lord called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off. So the people of God, Israel is his bride. But then God does something even greater is that God sends his son to restore his bride and make the church his bride. Are you still with me? Yes. 
And Jesus is then the bridegroom. Jesus says to the people in Luke 5.34, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? He is the bridegroom. I know this is a big concept, but this is important in understanding everything I'm going to say about women's rights in a second here. Is that God was the husband to the wandering people of Israel, and Jesus, as the image of the invisible God, steps in as the ultimate groom. And the grounding of the whole New Testament here is that the church is his bride. And that what we see is that Jesus is coming to restore his bride, to restore this understanding, to restore this relationship, to restore unity, to restore commitment, to create a new covenant. And so what we see in Jesus Christ as the bridegroom is that Jesus Christ unmistakably affirms the value of women. Jesus Christ unmistakably affirms the value of women. Because of sin, suffering enters the world, and so women were often one of the most abused people groups by evil. Like just not having the physical prowess, right? But also culturally, also in laws, and there's a long global history even today of women being abused, mistreated, not represented, sold as property, right? The rights that we understand for all people it, today are different than how it's, it's been historically, but even today around the world, we can look and see women being mistreated, right, and oppressed. And so when Jesus came to restore his creation, he came to do it in two parts. First, to lift women just as man out of the oppression of sin, that women, every woman here, you are all saved by Jesus Christ from your sin and your shame, just like every man, right? Or just like every man, regardless of what he's done, is saved through Jesus Christ. Every woman is saved through Jesus Christ. But there's a second thing he came to do, is that Jesus came to affirm their God-given value as his image bearers. That Jesus came to affirm women. And I want to encourage you that that's not unique to Jesus, but Jesus was actually doing what he said was the work of his father. God protected and affirmed women. You can go through the Old Testament. Let me give you a couple examples. Miriam, she was a prophet to Israel during the Exodus alongside Moses and Aaron. Deborah was a prophet and a judge who directed uh, Barak on how to lead the army of Israel into successful combat and victory. Um, Huldah was a prophet who authenticated the scroll of the law that was found in the temple and actually helped spark this religious reform in the days of Josiah. And what's awesome is Jesus is God, who was there at creation, who was there at the creation of women, who's part of the creation of women, and he values women as his children, his sons and his daughters, the sons and daughters of God. And so he comes to rescue and restore them. And so what's beautiful is as we read the Gospels of Jesus Christ, if you've never read them and the world has told you that Christianity does not affirm women, let me encourage you that the Gospels are a testament to the affirmation of the value of women. That Luke's Gospel is profoundly countercultural of the time it was written. Especially in the way that it constantly pairs men and women, which sounds super normal to us, but was not a crowd pleaser in the day. It wasn't a, it wasn't a crowd pleaser to the people he spoke it to. And we know that because they tried to kill him when he shared it, right? 
And usually at the time when you would share a story of a woman, a story of a man, the man's story would be more favorable. Women were, were seen as being um, less intelligent, less connected in, into their place. And so that usually the male story was favorable. But interestingly enough, often in Jesus' account, the female story and the, even the meekness thereof was elevated and affirmed and supported. I mean, even before Jesus' birth, the angel visits Zechariah, and the angel visits Mary. Zechariah says, how could this be? God makes him mute. Mary says, how could this be? And he says, you're blessed. That would not be a crowd pleaser in the ancient Near East. <laughs> Elizabeth prophesies over Jesus in the womb. The first prophecy that, that is given over Jesus, right, in his, in his, in his birth, like as a, as a human, was a woman. Jesus' first teaching, he enraged people in Luke 4.25 because he told two stories of God's love reaching beyond the Jews. One was a man and one was a, a woman. In Luke 18, the female prayer of the widow is contrasted with the male prayer of the Pharisees. And you can just guess which one was preferable. Even approaching crucifixion, Jesus stopped to address female mourners. Women are elevated in the healing accounts of the gospel. Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit. Then he heals Simon's mother-in-law. Luke 4.33, Luke 4.38. In chapter 7, he heals a centurion servant. Then he turns around, what does he do? Heals a widow's son. Chapter 8, he heals a man with a demon. Then he heals a, a woman suffering from bleeding. And then a synagogue ruler's daughter. We'd say, of course. Yeah, but that was very uncommon for the time. That was profound. And not only are they elevated in healing accounts, they're elevated in moral examples. The sinful woman who is the prostitute who comes into the dinner party at Simon's house and pours out the ointment, Jesus basically says, listen, Simon, this woman gets it in the kingdom more than any of you guys. He commends the poor widow in Luke 21 for giving two small coins. So not only were women elevated in healing accounts, and not only were they affirmed in moral examples, but they were affirmed as followers of Jesus Christ. In Luke 8, 2, it says this. It says, not only in the 12 disciples, it says also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities were his followers. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom the seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Chizah, Herod's household manager. And Susanna, and many others, who provided them out of their means. And not only were women followers of Jesus, women were the first ones that the resurrection was declared to. Imagine that. And that sounds, you're like, oh, that's awesome. But in a culture where women's testimony was less than a man, where you'd have to go get multiple women to testify to equal one testimony of a man, if you were making up a religion, you should not choose the people who testified to that religion to be the ones who wouldn't be counted in a court of law. That would be a crazy choice. You should choose dudes, right? But what do they choose? The first that it's revealed to are women. In Luke 24, 10, he says, It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. The apostles are blown away. Like, why'd they tell you first? <laughs> it's like, well, we were there. We were serving. Why do I say this? I hope you're, are you still with me? Yeah. It's because Jesus' value of women is unmistakable. That's right. And in a culture where women were devalued, where they were exploited, Jesus constantly affirms their status and value before God and his desire for personal relationship with them. Yes. 
And that's a really important foundation, understanding what God has said about women, understanding what Jesus has said about women. When you go in and begin to read the epistles, you begin to read especially what Paul has written about women. Because I don't know if there's ever been a place in Scripture that has been more used to shut down the spirit-given giftings of women than the writings of Paul. It's been used to ignore their giftings, to silence their voice. And oftentimes people, women, are, are struggling, and I've heard women struggle with the idea of coming to Christ because of this theme, because it is seen through the view of the world, not through the eyes of Christ. It didn't, doesn't come from that foundation that we just laid. And so people say, well, is Paul anti-women? And I would ask, like, do, do the actions of Paul and the writings of Paul, is that con- does that reflect that? Is, is that consistent with how God treated women or how Christ treated women? And it's okay. If Peter was confused by what Paul wrote, we can also be confused by what Paul wrote, right? <laughs> right? I think that's okay to not say we're, we're trying to fight right now in this moment for great general consensus, but to recognize that there are things occurring in the New Testament. That in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul says women will prophesy in the church, and then in 1 Corinthians 14, when he says women should remain silent, segato, limited in speech, that's confusing. Right? How can they prophesy publicly in the church would be given direction, but then also told to remain silent? But as we begin to understand that, and again, I have a whole blog about women in ministry. You can, you can read this week. I'll post it up this week, and you can read it. But Paul is often speaking towards order and against disorder in the church. And so it's important that we understand how God has called, anointed, and gifted women in the church according to all of Scripture. You can't make new doctrine in the epistles. It has to be supported in totality. So let me give you some key points here. Women were promised and filled with the Holy Spirit. That's important. (laughs) That's important, especially if you're afraid of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. (laughs) If it's an unsure gray area line on ministry, you better be real sure. I'm just saying. One of them blasphemes the Spirit. One of them doesn't. Women were promised and filled with the Holy Spirit. Joel 2.28 says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I'll pour out my spirit and all flesh on your sons and your, somebody guess, daughters. daughters. Those are women. And they shall do something pretty clear. It says they shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on male and female servants in those days I'll pour out my spirit. And this is fulfilled in Acts 2. Peter stands up and he quotes it. He says, look. It happened. The Spirit fell on the men and women who were in the upper room who were followers of Jesus. And they begin to go out and prophesy. And I think that that is profoundly important because Spirit-filled women are then recorded operating in ministry. This is an important part of the New Testament. Spirit-filled women operated in ministry. Tabitha initiated a benevolence ministry in Acts 9.36. Philip's four daughters were prophets in Acts 21, 8, and 9. Paul singled out two women, Eodia and uh, Syntyk, or Syntyk, depending on how you pronounce it, as women who have contended by my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. The word worker there literally means ministers, people who minister in Philippians 4, 2, 3. Priscilla was another of Paul's exemplary, in his words, fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Again, work applied to ministry, Romans 16, 3 through 4. 
And again, in Roman, uh, Romans 16, Paul greets numerous ministry colleagues, a large number of them women. And in these greetings, Paul uses, um, uses to speak of work, again, that word work, uh, the, the, the word there means labor, right? It's the labor of, of ministry. He says, Mary, a whole list of names in, in Romans 16. And he uses it again in 1 Corinthians 16, 16 to refer to women, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to refer to women, 1 Timothy 5, 17 to refer to women. He mentions Phoebe, a leader at the church who was highly commended to the church at Rome by Paul. And he, re and he recommends Junia, who is identified by Paul as an apostle. I think this is important. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is important because women were promised the Spirit. Yeah. Women were filled with the Spirit. And women operated with the Spirit right. in ministry. And we can have a discussion on women in ministry. But those functionally are undeniable as it comes to the fulfillment of prophecy right. according to the Word of God. The outpouring, the, the, the structure and all that. You know, churches debate all the time. I'm not here to do that. You can read the blog during the week and argue in the comments if you want. Please be nice. But my, my point is that people often point to the scriptures of Paul and say, see, this is the subjugation of women. Women have to be quiet. Women have to be under their husband. Women have to be all these things. Or women point and say, see, they want to rule us. They want to dominate us. They want to take away our rights. I want to tell you that the, there's a truth of scripture that when we understand that God has created women, when we understand that Paul is not going to devalue what God has valued and that the epistles cannot destroy what God has created and redeemed, but in fact they affirm it. And if we also understand that if God created women and gave commands of covenant commitment in order to preserve women, and if God promised his spirit to fall on women and for them to minister according to how, his, how the spirit gifts prophecy... And if women were given authority and honor by God in the Old Testament, and if Jesus came to earth and elevated, valued, and empowered women, and if Jesus sent the Spirit upon all people, men, women, free, slave, Jew, Greek, and if the New Testament records women operating in ministry by the Spirit, and if Paul commends those very women for their leadership and for their work, thus elevating them to a higher social status than would have been culturally allowed, that Paul is not going to turn around and then condemn them or tell them to stop doing what all Scripture has been preparing. Are you with me? Yes. Nor are his epistles, let me just give you encouragement, a roadmap for the oppression of women. When Paul writes to the church in the epistles, he writes to chaotic places. He writes to specific cultural issues. And so we have to ask when we're interpreting Scripture what's being described, what's being prescribed for us today, and what's being prescribed for the church then. We have to understand all those things. Yeah. And can we just say, it's complicated. Yeah. It can be complicated. People say, oh, it's just so simple. It's, it's not, though, because people smarter than us have been debating this for thousands of years. But there's a fundamental truth which is that men and women are different. And it's true that women should not tempt men, they should not dominate men, and they should not deceive men. And it's equally true that men should not harm women, they should not abuse women, and they should not dominate women. Right. It's that God created men and women for a beautiful marriage, and he created us for a unity as a symbol of his longing for unity with us. And so in light of all that, we can look at Scripture 
in a couple ways. So, for example, if you have your Bible, open to Ephesians 5 real quick. You could read Ephesians 5.22 as how the world might read it, which is some form of patriarchal oppression. Or you could read it the way that God has meant it, which is orderly, Christ-focused, clearly defined leadership, understanding, and unity in mutual service. In fact, let's read it together. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. In the world's eyes, because I've had this conversation with people who aren't believers, that's a huge stumbling block. Wives, submit to your husbands. Like, that, that sounds like an antiquated idea. Right? As, especially, like, as unto the Lord. Submit to your husband like he's God. Is that what he's saying? Right? Like, worship your husband like, like they're God. And I, and I think that can be a hard, hard functional idea. There's a lot of terms there. Oh, he's the source, right? He's the head. As Christ is like I, I don't like that. that sounds very oppressive that feels very domineering but can I just just imagine if the roles were reversed for a second let's say this what if it said women what it says to men women die for your husband give everything for your man like serve him so much that it leads to death that sounds worse than what he said for <laughs> right are you with me yeah, right but that's what he tells men to do so it's like, what is, what is he saying? What is he leading men and women to do? Is it that Paul is saying, women, like, you need to submit. You need to be quiet and you need to listen to your husband. Whatever he says, you go and you do. Like, just be quiet. Shut up. No. Because biblical eyes recognize something more beautiful that's occurring here. Is that to follow Christ means to submit everything. Everybody comes to Christ on their face. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You cannot do it standing up holding everything like a king. We, we all fall on our face before God and say, Jesus, I give you everything. That's the basis of faith, right? Yeah. I have nothing. I cannot earn my salvation. I give you everything. That's the key to new life. And so men, or Paul is not writing to give men license to oppress women, but so that their unity will reflect submission to Christ. That if we are not as married couples willing to submit to one another in leadership and understanding and in authority and to submit very clearly, as a servant-hearted person, it's never going to work. Yeah. See, God created us that there would be order, there would be leadership, there would be structure. You know, man, God created that you would lead well. That verse isn't so that your woman will be quiet, but so that you will speak up. And you will lead your family spiritually. And you will lead your family into prayer and into worship. That's why it exists. Yeah. But at the same time, women... That verse is there so that you will follow leadership. That's the beauty of it, is that leadership in Christianity looks like service to death. See, we hear leadership, we think domination. We say, well, men are told, told to take dominion over the earth. You know what dominion is? It's stewardship. You know how you steward something? You die for it. We're celebrating Veterans Day. Right? These are people who are willing to go fight for our country, possibly even to death. 
or to die for it. That's how you serve something, even unto death. See, what the world looks like oppression is actually protection through commitment, that we would both be in submission to Christ, that the marriage metaphor would be restored first with Christ, then with each other. It's not oppression, it's commitment. See, here's the problem with modern feminism. I know that was kind of a hard turn. <laughs> but here's the problem with modern feminism and the sexual revolution is the whole goal is freedom, but it's, it's a masked freedom. And that freedom, all it's doing is trying to remove commitment. Somebody say commitment. commitment. See, early feminism, the first wave of feminism fought for the right to vote, the right to own land. And that was actually led by Christian advocates. Said, no, wait a second. We're equal in the eyes of God. We should have an equal say. Modern feminism has diverged pretty sharply and focused on a sexual liberation. And the thought being that if we throw off all structure of re uh, religious morality, we'll throw off all that hinders, and therefore we will be free to express ourselves as we want without God or men or whatever telling us what to do. And that's an interesting thought, but I, I've heard it described like this. Imagine for a second a really brilliant and beautiful kite. Have you ever been to those places where everyone's flying kites in the air and it's like you go to a park on a windy day and it's just covered these beautiful kites. Imagine the most beautiful, ornate, amazing kite. And one day, as that kite is flying in the heights, as it's looking over the view and it sees the whole valley here and it sees the golf course, sees all these beautiful things and it's flying up to the heavens like it could almost touch the sun. One day it says, look at all I've done. Look how high up I am. Look how much I have achieved. Look at how great I am. And it pulls and it pulls and it says, yes, but I'm being held down by something. I'm being held back. I want to go as high as I can, but I'm being held down. So it pulls and it pulls and it breaks the string so that it can be free, so that it can go as high as it possibly could go, right? I mean, it's holding it back from achieving the heights, from being liberated. So it liberates itself, and in being liberated, it comes crashing down to the ground. Why? Because what the world sees as chains is often a tether to the thing that is allowing us to achieve everything we were created to achieve. Yeah. Romans 1.22 says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of, immortal, of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up into the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. See, the problem that we've encountered in our culture right now, I already talked about Marxism, so I won't tuck into that anymore, but we'll just collectively agree that's trash. Is that the problem with modern feminism is that it destroys commitment. And the biggest fans of modern feminism are weak men. They hit out like wolves in sheep's clothing, just waiting for that commitment to go away. See, the abandon of biblical purity and sexuality and identity, it tore away the security of commitment. Here's what's important commitment secures fulfillment. Biologically, we know that's important for women to be fulfilled uh, sexually. There is, most importantly, a level of commitment that must stand. 
They've studied this, that the women who are most fulfilled sexually in their relationships are those who are in a committed relationship. We know statistically that women have better sex when they're married. So Christian marriage does good. Amen. Amen. We know in the New Testament, husbands and wives were, are, are commanded and, and called to have sex and to focus on the women's satisfaction. But what's happened is we've removed commitment and weak, weak men have said, yes, that's my moment because now I can have what used to require commitment, but I can have it for free without commitment. And as we've gone into the polls, one of the biggest issues has been abortion. It's probably the largest women's issue we see today. And we see it's a women's right. It's women's rights. And I, and I think it's important as believers that not only advocate for the unborn, but we also advocate for the vulnerable. Yeah. And January 22nd, I'm going to give us just that chance to change the life of vulnerable people in our community. But can I just say, we have a strong stance on what abortion is and isn't. But my heart hurts for women who feel like abortion is the only option. Because, sure, there's responsibility on every individual, but there's a societal responsibility that we have to bear. Because abortion is symptomatic of a society that separates sex from commitment. That it creates an ecosystem of unplanned pregnancies, and then it fails to support women who find themselves in that situation. And this is why, as we've talked, and you've probably seen pro-life or anti-women's rights, you know, all, these, all these signs that are everywhere, I just want to say fundamentally the pro-life movement doesn't want to crush a woman's rights. This church does not want to take away a woman's rights, but to recognize that a person's right to decide, has to, uh, decide what to do with their own body has limits when those implications or those actions implicate another person's body. To, to recognize in one moment that the, the, the symptom of a culture that has abandoned commitment in the name of liberation is now faced with a great tragedy. But to also recognize that our own Savior was born to a scared young woman who was about to be left by her husband. And to also recognize that Mary, when visiting her sister Elizabeth, that in that encounter with Jesus in the womb and John the Baptist in the womb of her sister Elizabeth, it says in Luke 1.41, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So recognize both things. To recognize a scared young woman who is unsure of what's going to happen and also to recognize that the presence of God was within a womb. So there's enough of a life to carry with it not only the image of God, but the presence of God. And that presence is so powerful that it transferred to another child in the womb who responded. There's not just life in the womb. There's the presence of a living God in the womb. And I know there's always nuance. You know, what about this? What about that? And, and I understand that nuance has to be addressed. It's a very emotional thing. But the hard part with nuance is you can swing nuance both ways. Just as you could say over here, what about 0.02% that are involved in rape with abortion? You could swing it over here and say, what about the 25 million person gap in India today? Because India and China have selectively decided in the womb to kill girls. How, how, do, how do we feel about that? That as a woman, you could, be choose, you could choose to die. Someone could choose to kill you because of your gender. 
nuances hard. Should a baby be killed because they're a girl? I, I would say no. And this is why Christianity is not anti-women. Because like every element of Christianity, it's the recognition that babies are human. And the recognition that babies are human means they have an infinite value that belongs to a larger story. And that story is that the most valuable are the most important to God. That no human being is unwanted. All of us are sinners, and only Jesus has the right to judge. But it is a story where the sacrifice for the others is the only path to joy. It's a story that ends with the marriage of us and God that is so beautiful that it goes beyond even the most adorable, amazing marriage you could ever see on this earth. That is who God is. Christianity does not put down women. Christianity cares for the vulnerable. Today it is the infant, but for centuries it has been women. And it has been children. And it has been people who are, do not have an advocate, but they always find their advocate in God. Because Christianity cares for the vulnerable. It doesn't denigrate women. In fact, for centuries, it has been the residence of true care for those who are the most vulnerable. Christ cared for the vulnerable. And he commanded his followers to do the same. And so where Christ is elevated, the vulnerable are elevated. And regardless if you're like, I'm strong, I'm not vulnerable, I'm a woman, I'm, I'm tough, I could beat you up. I believe you. I believe you. If you look strong, do MMA, right? I don't know, whatever you do. Regardless, we have to recognize historically, globally, that women have been mistreated and have been a vulnerable population, and even are to this day. That the freedoms and the rights we are allowed today in this country and the security of women's identity are because of Christianity. The call of Christianity, hear me, this is why it's important, is to care for the vulnerable. It's to care for the vulnerable. Does Christianity denigrate women? Does Christianity denigrate anyone? No. Because the call is to care for the most vulnerable around us. It's because we care for the vulnerable. We care for the ones who cannot speak, who do not have a voice. That's not to put anyone down, but to lift people up. And to care for them. The call of Christianity is to care for the vulnerable. Band, you can come up. Prayer team, you can come up. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The call of Christianity is to care for the vulnerable. Do you know Christmas is on a Sunday this year? Do you know that? See, for me, I'm excited. You're like, well, you have to be excited. It's your job. <laughs> and you're right. <laughs> Christmas is on a Sunday. You know why we have Christmas? You know why we have the day of Christmas? First and foremost, because Jesus came and died. He came to sit down with prostitutes, yeah. right? He came literally like what was birthed into an unwed teen mother and came to sit with prostitutes and thieves and all kinds of people, right? the most forgotten, the most vulnerable, the, the, the crippled, the orphan, right? You, that's why we have Christmas. We also have Christmas because believers said, listen, we need a day off to celebrate that a God has come near to care for the vulnerable. You know, that's what we have. I know Christmas is like 800 days long now, but that's why we have that day, right? And I think there's two ways of looking at Christmas this year. One is how can I organize Christmas around me? Yes, Jesus, I know it's got your name in it. 
but I got a lot to do. How can I organize it around me? The other way is, how can I approach Christmas like Christ, who came to serve the most vulnerable and give his life for their ransom? One way, how can I organize it around me? The other way, how can I organize it around Christ, who came to serve the most vulnerable? And I mentioned at the beginning, and I want to invite you for 40 days leading up to Christmas to pray, God, give me encounters with the hurting and broken and vulnerable so that I can share the hope of Jesus. Church, you know how we show the world that we're not anti-women's rights? We care for the vulnerable, right? You care for that mother who's scared of what to do with their child. You care for that family who is hurting and struggling. We love them into Christ. We love them towards God. You know, that's my prayer that this whole season will be marked by caring for the vulnerable. Could you imagine, church, that if the, over the next 40 days, next 40 days, everybody in this church, just four people, that's not like you had to bring them to service, just four people that you loved on like Christ. Loved on like Christ. You could do the math. You change the world with that. Four people for 40 days to love them into Christ. On January 22nd, we're doing a ministry called Find Your Fit in Foster Care. We're launching an initiative that we talked about called Banner for the Family. We're going to be caring for the most vulnerable. You know, there was 4,800 foster families before COVID. Now there's currently 2,000 foster families after COVID. There's more than 2,000 foster kids in the world. So we're going to talk about that. But I just want to say, let's, let, let's not wait. Let's just today, even now, Say, God, give us eyes for the vulnerable. This is not about holding up signs for this, against this. This is not yelling, we're for this, against this. This is going out and doing the work of Jesus Christ. This says, listen, Banner Church believes Jesus Christ is for women, for men, for the unborn, for the orphan, for the widow, for the hurting, for the broken. That that would be our prayer for the next 40 days. That's called the Advent Fast. The thing we're fasting is our fear. And we're going to say, God, lead us, lead us. Would you stand with me this morning? If that's you and you're here in this place and you're saying, okay, this holiday season, Lord, would you help me to care for the vulnerable? Our band's going to lead us in, in some worship as we respond in a moment. But before we do that, with, with your heads bowed, just you and the Lord, if you're saying, God, would you lead me to care for the hurting and broken and vulnerable this season? You're here in this place. Maybe that's as simple as inviting the cashier at, at Albertsons to church. You're like, I don't know how to communicate it, but I'm just going to get them here. <laughs> they can hear it. If that's you in this place, and you're saying, God, would you strengthen me? I want to commit four for 40 in the next. I don't, I don't even know those four, but I'm trusting your Holy Spirit to lead me. If that's you and you say, God, would you lead me, strengthen me in that? Would you just lift your hands? I'd be honored to pray with you today. I want to pray over this church and believe just some amazing things this morning. And then in a second, keep your hands raised, but in a second, as the band plays, if you are someone who struggles in this holiday season and in the chaos and the anxiety of it, our prayer team would love to pray very specifically for you this morning. So I'm going to invite you as the band plays to just come forward and have that moment. Be free to that. But with our hands raised, let's pray together. We say, God, we focus our hearts and this season on you. Thank you, Jesus, for caring for the most vulnerable. Holy Spirit, give us the strength. 
Give us the compassion to follow Christ in this example. Give us eyes for the forgotten child. Give us eyes for the widowed woman and the pregnant teen. Give us eyes and hearts for those experiencing homelessness or unemployment. God, give us eyes for who the world does not see or does not want to see. And God, give us eyes for anyone around us who we know longs and needs your love. And in doing so, God, would you reveal your glory and your power in this church through these believers. I pray right now over your life that you would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit as you bring hope and life with him to others. I pray he would move through you. I pray if you struggle with anxiety right now, that anxiety and fear would be taken. I pray even right now as you're listing off all the things you have to do, all the busyness and all the chaos, I pray that even amidst chaos, even amidst storms, God would use you in such a beautiful and peaceful way that he's going to give you that time and that moment and even amidst your chaos that you'd be able to witness to the truth of Jesus Christ and that this Christmas, this church would be full of people who are far from God and discover hope. God, if we could have one gift, may it be that this city comes to know you. We can hold off even with presents for a year. We can even hold off with gifts for a year, but there's someone we know that cannot hold off another year without the hope of Jesus Christ. So we pray, give us vision in Jesus' mighty name. Let's pray and sing the name of Jesus in this moment together. Thank you for listening to the Banner Church Podcast. We hope this message was impactful for you. Check the episode notes to visit our website, follow us on social media, and subscribe to our podcast. We'll see you again next week.